step one is not making the statement, I will never use alcohol again. Step one is the renewing of my mind. If I don't change the way that I think about what I'm doing to hurt myself, I'm never going to be able to be free from it. And so what the program allowed me to do, it gave me the environment, the structured environment. It gave me a healthy environment inside of prison. The best place for a person to go through a process like this, unfortunately, it is locked away from society. Uh, and I have to attest to that. That's just a fact because you can control the environment. And I learned a term that changed my life and it is called rewiring the brain real science but it requires programming it requires the right culture it requires the right atmosphere and it requires a concerted effort to form a community of people who are having to deal with those same issues i came into the system addicted I left the system free. Welcome listeners to the Sidecast for episode 10, which is dedicated to the topic of mentoring and re-entry. In this Sidecast, we want to introduce you to Dr. Ronald Garrett, who is the re-entry coordinator in the District of Columbia for the Catholic Charities Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Although he was raised in a strict Christian household, as a young college student, Dr. Garrett started using drugs. This habit led him to make some bad decisions that eventually got him a 20-year sentence in prison. While incarcerated in Georgia, Dr. Garrett read an article about a faith-based model that was being implemented in a Texas correctional facility and began to advocate for the model to be brought to Georgia. After President George W. Bush was elected President of the United States, this model, known as the Faith and Character-Based Program, was expanded to prisons across the nation. Although it started off as a Christian-only initiative, by the time the program expanded to other states across the U.S., it became an inclusive, faith-based initiative. In 2004, the model was introduced in four correctional facilities in Georgia. The program actually existed for three years before I would actually get the opportunity to be a part of the program uh, in 2011. By this time, we had 16 facilities and 16 faith and character-based dorms in Georgia. And they range from 50-man dorms to up to 128-man dorms. The program was having such success that, I mean, it was, it was just remarkable, the, the change that you could see in the uh, culture in these living environments. So give us some idea of some of the programs besides the arts and crafts and what was really at the core of this program. And then you mentioned that it was also tried in other states, but it wasn't quite as successful as in Georgia. What was the difference in Georgia? The main difference in Georgia, uh, I believe, was the, the leadership of the program. Uh, a lady by the name of Miss Lisa Hoy, who was the reentry coordinator for the Georgia Department of Corrections, and she oversaw the implementation of the faith and character-based model in the Georgia system. 
And keep in mind at this point, there was no blueprint for faith and character-based dorms. Each state, when they started the program, they basically started from scratch and developed their own idea of what it would look like. Ms. Hoy continually impressed upon us that we must remain open to every religious belief that we could not proselytize anyone, pressure anyone to change their religious uh, orientation in any shape, form, or fashion, but allow everyone in the program to develop their character based on their own religious belief system. One of the first classes of the faith and character-based program is called Religious and Cultural Diversity. In the four phases, there are two mandatory classes in each phase. And again, the first class is religious and cultural diversity, which teaches the participants to respect the religious beliefs of everyone, even if they happen to be different from your own. The fact that no one allowed for uh, proselytization, no one allowed for anyone to be pressured to change their religious belief and any religious organization that attempted to be a part of our program, they were welcome, whether it was Wiccan, whether it was uh, Jehovah Witness, whether it was Jewish, whether it was Islam, it didn't matter because according to our federal law in this country, every person has a right to practice their religion. While in the other states, it's from what you told me before, it seemed that there was maybe more an attempt to convert people or not really as inclusive as what happened in Georgia. Yeah. Right. In the other states, although I guess having a vague understanding of really uh, what the parameters would be, especially on the federal level, uh, I would say the people really even meant well, but they did not understand that just because they were Christians themselves, they could not require and mandate for anyone in a state facility or a federal facility to accept a religious belief simply to be a part of a character or a re-entry program. You can't mandate something like that. It has to be the person's choice. It has to be voluntary. In terms of character forming, what are some of the values that the program is based upon? And there may be values that are related to all religions. Character development would happen to be the second core class that is mandatory, and that is exactly what it talks about. Tenets such as loyalty, respect, love, forgiveness, mercy, empathy, and the list goes on and on of the character attributes that are germane to any person that we would want to be our friend or to be a family member in, in the world, not just in this country or not just in a, a prison setting. What about phases three and four? What are some other characteristics? Phase one is, I'm going to use the term attitude. Phase two, the term character. Phase three, relationship. Phase four, re-entry. Those are four phases that that's not what we're doing in necessarily in the Georgia system, but for our listeners to understand the dynamics of the process of change for the individuals that we're dealing with, that's the, way I would, that, that's the best way I could explain it. Because we have to deal with the person's attitude first and their thinking before we could do any kind of life change or behavior modification. 
We have to deal with a person's character because the defects of character is what got us there in the first place. And then we have to teach people about relationships because many people who are in the prison environment ended up in such a state because they had isolated themselves from the rest of society. And then lastly, phase four, re-entry, we would focus on the soft skills necessary to be effective in today's 21st century economy and our 21st century society. What kind of a person were you when you first got into prison and what kind of a person were you when you got out of prison through this program? How did it change you? It changed me because I learned through the process that stopping a negative habit like drinking alcohol or using illegal drugs or smoking or and there's a number of uh, overeating, there's a number of uh, different addictions that many, many of us in society need to be free from. Most people who have never been a drug addict or an alcoholic view it as a simple choice of the individual who is in that, locked in that form of behavior. They don't understand that simply quitting, uh, once a person has become addicted, it is not as simple as making a choice. Yes, it was a choice the first time they took the first drink. It was a choice the first time they lit the first cigarette. But once the body has uh, become addicted to the cycle of use, the emotional state of being of the person is affected, the psychological state of being of the person is affected, it, it requires a great deal of work to become free from uh, an addiction. I came into the system with a lot of negative thoughts that I did not know how to change. I did not know how to redirect. And as a result of the program, my brain was rewired to be able to once again have hope for a future, to understand that I could in fact live free from drugs and alcohol, that I could be a productive citizen in society. Those are the things that uh, I received from being a part of the faith and character-based program. How many years did you do? 20 years in the Georgia Department of Corrections. 20 years in prison is a long time, but you were lucky that you had 10 years in this program. Now you work in reentry and help others re-enter. Tell us about that and what inspired you to do the work you do today. From the outset of my incarceration experience, I was fortunate enough to work in a, in a capacity called a chaplain's assistant. I was confronted with men over the course of my incarceration who I knew personally, who I had witnessed uh, do the hard work to make the changes in their life needed to be successful upon their reintegration into society, but whom did not have the family support necessary to be able to get a start. That is what motivated me to now become a part of the reentry and reintegration process. I determined in 1998, when I was sentenced to do 20 years in prison, that I had to make the time work for me. In 2003, I earned a bachelor's degree in theology. 
in 2009, a master's degree in ministry, church administration, and in 2012, a doctorate degree in ministry, chaplaincy services. I knew that God was preparing me to work in this field from the day that I started in my, my prison experience. And so therefore, rather than just wasting my time, I enrolled in college by the grace of God. Uh, because of my family and, and family support, I was able to do that. Uh, it is not something that is accessible to everyone, but that is what I took advantage of for, the, for 12 years of my prison experience. I wasn't in prison. <laughs> I was in college. That is the way that I perceived my experience. Why was the family support so central to that experience? To know that there's someone that loves you unconditionally, that is that wants to see you do the best you can with your life, even when you're locked up. To have letters from your family, uh, financial support from your family, visits from your family, it gives a person behind those fences hope for a brighter tomorrow. People who do not have family support, like I did, it is very difficult to remain focused over a five-year prison sentence, 10-year prison sentence, and believe that there's going to be a brighter day when they, when they get out because they just mentally cannot comprehend how am I going to be able to get out of here. I don't have a place to stay. I don't have a car. I don't have an education. I don't have a job, and it's just, it's overwhelming. How was your reentry? What was it like the day you left prison? My reentry is nothing short of miraculous. On the day that I was released, my parents, my brothers, my church family, community members and community leaders all gathered at the facility that I was being released from. Uh, we had a, a prayer and praise service right in the lobby of the facility I was released from, which was the Augusta Transitional Center. Uh, and we went to breakfast at Cracker Barrel together. My brother, who is a motivational speaker, had already made arrangements for me to live with him in Clinton, Maryland. I was released on a Tuesday. On Thursday, I was on a plane to Los Angeles. On Saturday, I was on a plane to Colorado. Again, my brother's a motivational speaker. He uh, mainly presents in the education space. And so I became his personal assistant with the different education conferences that he was invited to, uh, where he would not only give uh, the keynote speeches, uh, do workshops, but he also had a product table to sell his uh, books and other other things that he's developed to help kids in their education experience. You said something that really struck me, that for you, prison, you were in college for 12 years, and that's what you made of it. At, my, at the first facility I was housed at, Frank Scott State Prison, I'm walking around in this gloomy dungeon of a prison, and I happened to notice on the wall a flyer that said Jacksonville Theological Seminary, applications in the chaplain's office. Blew my mind. I was accepted into the program. In one of the classes uh, that uh, Dr. Stair, who was our, uh, one of my lifelong mentors, he asked the class a question. He said, where are you? 
and each one of the men one by one, I'm in prison. I'm locked up. I'm behind these fences. And when he got to me, I said, sir, I'm at college. And he looked up from his desk and he said, explain what you mean by that. If I was being from Greensboro, North Carolina, had I chosen to go to Colorado State University, I could not have remained at home with my family and slept in, the, in, our, in my house, in my bedroom, and go to Colorado State University. I would have to move. And in most cases, children that go to school, they move into a college dorm. So I looked at my surroundings as just a a dorm, it had a bed, it had a place for me to store my personal property. I had a place that I could go to study hall. There was a library. So my prison became college for me. That is how I approached my time in the Georgia Department of Corrections. But we hear a lot of stories about things that happen in prison that are not so pretty and that it's tough. And then there is solitary how does that enter the notion of I'm actually in college, I want to see it this way, and what's the challenge when other things that do not seem college-like happen? There were terrible things that happened in prison. Uh, I can't sit here and say that uh, everything was a rosy experience because it was not, but for the most part, the people who were involved in the negative behavior tend to congregate together people who tended to be about trying to make positive changes in their life, we tended to stick together and create our own group and our own uh, culture with what we were doing. And for the most part, a person who stayed out of the illegal activity that we shouldn't have been doing anyway in prison, uh, for the most part, a person could make it through the prison system without too much drama for me, being focused on my, my education experience, I mean, there were, a lot of, there were a lot of people who they actually looked up to me because of my, ability, my, my opportunity to work as a chaplain's assistant. It's a very coveted job in the, in the prison system because I spent so much time mentoring and discipling uh, younger men that even negative people who would have any kind of issue with me, there was a a large group of people said, no, y'all not going to bother, not this guy right here, because he's, he's, he's in college, he's trying to get his life together, leave him alone. There were more than one instance where people came to my aid because of my, my studies and what I was trying to accomplish in my life. Tell us what you do now. By the grace of God, I, during my, after I spent three months traveling the country with my brother, for most people who get out of prison, getting a job and having to earn money today is the number one priority. By the grace of God, that was not my, that was not my situation. I was actually told, Ron, you don't need a job yet. Don't worry about that. Just take your time. After three months of, of traveling, uh, I began thinking about where I would really want to live and what God was calling me to do. And uh, my brother suggested, why don't you put in some applications you know, here in the, in the DMV? Because I was really dead set on going back to Georgia and continuing to work with returning citizens in Georgia. I did. 
uh, began sending out a few resumes and whatnot. I was speaking with a lady and sharing with her actually my testimony, kind of what I'm talking about now. And she handed me a card that said, you need to go and talk to the people at Catholic Charities. And lo and behold, uh, I did. I sent in my resume. They were for a position re-entry coordinator for Washington, D.C. And the basic focus of my job is to recruit mentors, train mentors, do assessments of returning citizens who have been released for 12 months or less or who are within 90 days of being released and match them up with a mentor in the community. One of the things that I believe that, that helped me for Catholic Charities to be interested in me doing this job is a key component of Walker Faith and Character-Based Prison was to match every one of the 400 participants in that program with a one-on-one, life-on-life mentor. We recruited 25 volunteers from the Presbyterian Church. That was the initial group. To date, there are over 300 mentors a part of the Walker Faith and Character-Based Program. We haven't achieved a total goal of 400 yet, but we're well on our way. Family support, education, job training, and mentoring are the greatest predictors of success for returning citizens reintegrating society. Having a person to be the brother that you don't have, the father that you don't have, the family support that many do not have is life-changing. I now have the opportunity to enter federal facilities, state facilities in Maryland, give presentations of our mentoring program to returning citizens who are within 90 days of being released. I tell them about the program, the great impact that mentors uh, have had on my life. Having these mentors in my life, along with my parents, along with my brothers, has been nothing short of life transforming. So. Speaking about family support, tell us about your own family. Again, when I went off to college and, and, and began to get involved in some of the things that, that allowed for my life to get off course, uh, one of the most special things that happened to me during my college experience was meeting my wife. And keep in mind, I've been in prison. I served 20 years in prison, but we have been married for over 30 years. She knew me before I became an addict. She knew my heart, she knew my passion for life, and she knew that I loved her unconditionally. And when she began to understand what I was doing with my time in prison, going to college, uh, working in the chaplaincy department, mentoring uh, the young men in the uh, prison environment, um, I can remember, remember praying to God uh, for someone, you know, to mentor my sons and and be there to be the father figure for my sons. And I can remember distinctly hearing from God that to the degree that you mentor and disciple the men that you can have an impact on their lives will be to the degree that I will provide those same things for your children. Uh, Both of our sons, Brandon and Dwayne, both graduated college. Statistics say that 75% of all African-American males who grew up in a fatherless household go to prison. Imagine that 
our two sons, without me being there for 20 years, were able to accomplish uh, becoming college graduates and being successful in life. I mean, my wife, I mean, she did a heroic, magnificent uh, job with raising our, our sons. Uh, she was even gracious enough to forgive me. And we're still together today. That This is not normal because of the great number of blessings that have been bestowed upon me in my life. That is why this work is so important to me. Thank you for listening to the Sidecast. As you may know, we are wrapping up season one of this podcast in the next few weeks and have a couple more episodes to drop. Make sure you stay connected and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you like what we have produced so far, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it will help us get discovered by other listeners and find sponsors for our second season. If you have ideas on topics we should cover, do send us an email at podcast one in four at gmail.com. Again, that was podcast one in four at gmail.com. Until the next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>